Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Welcome to this second part in our four-part exploration of the concept of power. In the last episode, we spoke with Daniel Meisler about the technology that is going to change how we interact with the world. And the phrase that stands out from that episode is one he quoted from Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus, where Harari poses three interlinked processes for defining our future. The first is that science is moving toward the notion that living organisms are just advanced data processes based on algorithms. The second is that intelligence is decoupling from consciousness. And the third is that non-conscious but highly intelligent algorithms may soon know us better than we know ourselves. But we're going to go back in time with this episode and examine traditional notions of power and their philosophies. Some of this will probably be familiar to you. Now before we begin, I just want to make a short note about gender pronouns in this and the next two episodes. Often you'll hear me refer to kings, mankind, and he and him. This is intentional. I do use he or she at times, but there's a message within these episodes about power which I'll try to convey and which needs to take into account the historical male-dominant narrative for its context. This is not a reflection of gender bias or chauvinism on my part. It is deliberate, so I hope you understand. My ongoing project has been to understand what happens within us through our inner private mental worlds and between us through our outer social ones. This journey through study and research never settles on any one thing as the source of truth or knowledge. It is constantly shifting. It might feel that way for many of you too. Sometimes these shifts are obvious and abrupt, that moments of epiphany and realisation when the dots connect. More often though, they're subtle and elusive. These subtle shifts in perception are a feature of human nature. They influence how we live and behave, insidiously distorting our constructions of reality until we are living in a world that we didn't know existed, that we don't realise exists all around us, even now. There's an urban myth that we only ever use a small percentage of our brains, but I think it would be more accurate to say we only ever see a small percentage of the world around us. But when we look through the lens given us by the great thinkers of history, we can begin to see this ever-changing dynamic, we can sharpen our focus and tease out the hidden and reveal its character. We are forever condemned to live within our social epoch, the cultural normative framework that defines us and dictates how we should behave, the place where power lives. But the more awareness we have of what we normally take for granted, the more mindful we can be of not only who we are, but why we are who we are. One of the most defining characteristics of the history of humanity, and indeed the social, political and institutional structures that dictate how everyday life unfolds, both the seen and unseen, extend from the concept of power. So it's worth spending some time unravelling this complex thread. What is power? That is the question at the heart of the next few episodes. To answer it, we will need to approach it from several different angles. To understand what power is, we need to understand how it works and why it is the way it is, and in different contexts. We could start simply with a definition. Power is a noun, it's a verb and an adjective. It is something that can be possessed, power can be motive and forceful, and it can be mechanical, something related to strength. 
In physics, power is the amount of energy converted or transferred from one state to another for a given unit of time. And as much as this definition serves as a useful metaphor for the type of power I'm interested in, it is not the path we are going to take. If you aren't disappointed with this, there are plenty of podcasts which do go down this path, and one I'd highly recommend for the physics inclined is Thomas Hornigold's excellent podcast, Physical Attraction. But let's set aside the physical connotations of power. Here, we are interested in power as a social psychological force, one that drives societies, institutions, ideologies and individuals. British philosopher Bertrand Russell can get us on our way with his take on what power is. Russell says, power is the production of intended effects. Okay, that's pretty good. But it is talking about what power does. Power achieves an outcome. But it doesn't tell us anything about the how or why of power, which would give us a much fuller definition. Social psychologists R.P. French and Bertram Raven defined power in their 1959 paper on the basis of social power as the potential to influence others in psychologically meaningful ways. So to Russell's outcome, we've added a vehicle for power, influence and, crucially, psychological influence. There is potential, it is inherent to a certain position, but to be effective, it must be meaningful, it must change something from one state to another, just as in our definition of power from physics. This is interesting. We're expanding our conception of power from some motive mechanical force resulting in an outcome to something more subtle that acts on how we perceive the world and behave in it. Power is being transformed from an external force that acts upon us to something internal that acts from within us. We can think of power in this form as soft power. French and Raven then add a method for manifesting power. They say power emerges from control over resources and the ability to administer rewards and punishments. It's fascinating. So now we've added in an element of coercion and a conception of who or what may hold power. The influence of power acts not only internally through subtle psychological means, but also by compelling and coercing its subjects to action. And this we can call hard power. Power, whether hard or soft, is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. It's all around us operating at every level of relationship from the lofty heights of church and state to the intimate connections between friends and lovers. Anna Goynote, a professor of psychology at University College London, encapsulates much of what we are described here in the following definition. She says, Power is as fundamental to social science as energy is to physics. It is a sort of social elastic that defines norms, regulations and guidelines to be followed by people occupying different roles or positions. It affects how people think, feel and behave. It is the glue that coordinates social life and moves shared goals forward. A force so important then must surely warrant our attention and understanding. Historically, we think of power in the traditional sense. Power is something vested in a ruler, either a king or a religious leader, who commands his people. Bertrand Russell wrote extensively on power, and he described these two types of traditional power as kingly power, which is typically won through war, or priestly power, which is typically vested in someone thought to be in touch with God, a medicine man or shaman, someone who held unique powers to heal or curse. Priestly power is grounded not so much in violence, but in charismatic authority. In some cases, particularly in ancient societies, the king held both types of power. 
and the king emerged from either conquering his rivals or maybe through familial ties. And in many cases, he was charismatic and able to draw a large following of loyal subjects. Ancient Egypt was one of the first organised civilizations thought to have arisen due to the ability of its leader to provide security and resources for a large group of people. As society grew, people had less reason to leave, and the ruler became ever more powerful, eventually commanding great swaths of people who would build his eternal resting place in the pyramids that we see today. Social psychologist Richard Koenigsberg writes, The pharaoh was conceived as the living incarnation of society. So in this way, a central figure became the source of power by virtue of his ability to provide for his people. Society existed for the pharaoh, and he existed for it. And Russell argued that power arises from a need to coordinate activities to achieve some end or goal. It is a mechanism for achievement, it's not an end in and of itself. However, such a position in a traditional power structure is tenuous. Should the leader fail to ensure the resources and security needed for continued survival, his leadership will be challenged, and eventually he will be removed from power. 17th century philosopher John Locke described this relationship between a king and his subjects as legitimate power. The king rules through the consent of his subjects, therefore it is dialectic, meaning both the leader and the followers exert some force on the relationship, despite the seeming imbalance in the power. If the power holder does not fulfil the expectations of society, he will be rejected. Though when this occurs, a vacuum will be left, which destabilises society until a new leader can be appointed. In a traditional power structure, the king rules from the top of a metaphorical pyramid, with power flowing downhill through a series of ministers, with the subjects existing at the bottom layer, ready to serve the king. The system requires participants at each level to exist. If the subjects fail to honour the leadership structure, the top layers collapse. The foundation of power is the very people who are commanded, however their voice is disparate and suppressed. To organise a revolt against the incumbent requires significant sacrifice and cohesion, and often another charismatic leader who calls the people to arms. But if the people are content, or at least content enough, if the king provides sufficient resources and benefits from his leadership, society itself suppresses voices of dissent. The integrity of the structure, therefore, depends on the nature of the king and his ability to satisfy the needs of society. A king who provides greater benefits for the people than they could alone will remain in power, and the system will be perpetuated through generations as long as the status quo is maintained. Russell called this type of power functional power. The people will even tolerate a certain level of abuse from the king as long as he continues to provide them with sufficient benefits. It is accepted by society that those in power are entitled to certain resource benefits and privileges. People love to have heroes and idols, people to look up to for inspiration and leadership. A leader who understands this balance can remain in social credit with the populace and get away with murder, literally. But should the leader become selfish and greedy, or too tyrannical, ruling by dominance, coercion and exploitation, society will eventually revolt. Russell noticed this pattern emerging throughout human history, A leader comes to power and society settles into a rhythm of mutual trust where power is legitimate and respected. But over time, the leader goes too far, ruling through coercion and oppression, and eventually the people revolt. They tear down the walls of power, they dethrone the rejected leader, and seat a new one. However, the powerless do not know how to lead. They do not understand the functional model of power, 
They know only how to be subjects. So soon, chaos ensues. The revolutionaries lose control of society and fight back to retain their newfound power. They repress a new underclass, and their power also becomes coercive and oppressive. Their reign is worse than that of the leader they displaced. This story may sound familiar to you. It is the story of the Bolshevik Revolution of the early 20th century, of the rise of Marxism, Stalin, and the Soviet Union. But there are others. Power, Russell argues, inevitably leads to inequality. It is built into the system. According to Abraham Lincoln, it is the foolish and character flawed that corrupt power. A tyrannical leader will upset the balance between layers of the power pyramid. Russell called this naked power as if this is the instinctual, natural power vested within humans. When unrestrained or directed toward a collective interest, power is sinister and malevolent. William Golding's classic The Lord of the Flies explores human behaviour through the eyes of a group of young boys who find themselves stranded on a desert island. They begin by following the direction of a natural leader, Ralph, who steps up to help the boys settle into their environment. It is not long though until Ralph's leadership is challenged by Jack, who offers the group the promise of fun in exchange for their loyalty. A power struggle ensues, and the boys begin a rapid devolution into chaos, resulting in ritualistic tribal behaviour and superstition as they fear a beast lurks in the jungle, threatening to destroy them. Midway through the story, the boys become enraptured and enraged and eventually kill two of their own in frenzied attacks. One boy, Simon, suffers from epilepsy and after a seizure retreats to a hidden enclave in the jungle to rest. Earlier, Jack's tribe had caught and slaughtered a wild pig and Jack had thrust its decapitated head upon a stake which happened to be near Simon's hiding place. In a semi-conscious daze, Simon begins hallucinating as he stares at the impaled head of the pig. It is teeming with ravenous insects and begins to speak to him. It introduces itself as the Lord of the Flies. The central theme of the novel emerges in the following passage in which the Lord of the Flies reveals to Simon the true nature of the beast which the boys are convinced has been stalking them across the island. Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt and kill, said the head. For a moment or two, the forest and all the other dimly appreciated places echoed with the parody of laughter. You knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. I'm the reason why it's no go. Why things are what they are. Golding, through the Lord of the Flies, is telling us that power is the beast within all of us. And it corrupts. The novel concludes as the boys set the island alight. Jack's horde of rebels hunting down Ralph as he runs for his life through the jungle. Ralph bursts onto the beach and finds himself looking up at a British naval officer. Behind him, a cutter is anchored to the beach, and in the distance, a warship floats at rest on the horizon. Soon the others emerge from the burning jungle and join Ralph. They're mostly naked, smeared with clay, and holding sharpened sticks. "'What have you been doing?' the officer asks, amused. "'Having a war or something?' As the scene becomes clear to him, the officer reprimands the boys. I should have thought that a pack of British boys would have put up a better show than that. With a mixture of relief and despair, Ralph begins to weep, and soon the other boys too are overcome with emotion. Golding writes, Ralph wept for the end of innocence and for the darkness of man's heart. It's a wonderful novel, which I remember studying in high school English class. 
and I also remember not appreciating it at all at the time. My young, ignorant mind was not yet ready to listen to the message Golding was trying to convey. However, this message was also of its time and illustrates the dichotomy between individual power and human nature, and the power vested in socio-cultural structures. In the first instance, it is telling us that if man is not constrained by law and order, through social norms and shared morality, he will descend into chaos and savagery. The boys are an ideal analogue for an ungoverned society, immature enough to be able to quickly forget the society that raised them. But while the theme presented subtly in the text is its underlying message, it also represents its own milieu, or social epoch, of 1950s post-war colonial Britain. Its construal of society and of man is constrained to the norms of its time, and the notion that mankind is at heart corrupt and it is society which holds his groups together with some form of civility. Uncivilised societies, those without the bounds of Western culture, are little more than roaming packs of barbarian savages who know nothing but to hunt and kill. Western civilised society dictates what is right, how we should behave and what values are worth upholding. But what were those values? A new world order was in its infancy following the end of the Second World War. Fascism and extreme nationalism had given way to a more broadly socialist society, which placed its faith in science, technology, capitalism and economics. But this was also a society founded on the colonisation of smaller nations, of the requisitioning of resources and indigenous peoples to propagate the economy of the mother nation and the empire. Modern civilised society, therefore, was not a utopia of moral ascendancy, as these concepts are relative. It was a product of its time. Its customs, rituals and norms served as identifiable traits manifest in the social milieu, which we can now see clearly upon reflection, but which were just the way it is for those immersed in the culture of the time. Power emerges explicitly among the factions that contest it. Yet underlying the narrative is the implicit theme of the Lord of the Flies, that it is civilised society that ensures survival and harmonious coexistence. To find the true source of power, therefore, one must look to the institutions of society. The naval officer who arrives to rescue the boys represents the voice of civilization, looking on with disdain. The boys are ashamed of their true nature and weep in their collective realisation that the beast was indeed inside all of them, as revealed to Simon by the Lord of the Flies. Without the influence of society, mankind would descend into oblivion. The reader is therefore unwittingly conditioned to his or her role in this dyad, both as one conferring power through membership of society and of being subject to it. Without the implicit agreement of both sides, power could not prevail. Power is conditional. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email the Here and Now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>